I'll meet you in Isaiah chapter 2. Let's go, let's go Old Testament today into one of the major prophets. That simply just means quantity, not quality, although he is both. I want to read for you the most quoted prophetic passage of the first 300 years of Christian writing. Now, I find little facts like that pretty intriguing. From Isaiah chapter 2, verses 2 through 4, let's read it, and then I'll comment a little more on that thought because I do find that very intriguing. In days to come, some of your translations will say, in the last days. All right, I'm gonna, we're going to get to that in a moment. In days to come, the mountain of the Lord's house shall be established as the highest of the mountains and shall be raised above the hills. And all the nations shall stream to it. Many people shall come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord in the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways, that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth instruction and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. And verse 4 is the real heartbeat of those quotes. This is where this is the major prophetic passage. He shall judge between the nations and shall arbitrate for many peoples. They shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they teach, neither shall they learn war anymore. Again, repeat this, I'll repeat this phrase. The most quoted prophetic passage in the Old Testament for the first 300 years of Christian writing. Now you consider that we, we don't have Christian writing any earlier than the middle of the first century. And if you go 300 years out from there, you not coincidentally land at Constantine, the emperor of Rome who mandates Christianity as the religion of the empire. Now, you don't have to be too biblically smart to make a connection between the fact that for 300 years, the passage in Christian writing was, we need to beat our swords into plowshares and turn our knives into pruning hooks. And then the nation, the empire, and the church link up. And there's a precipitous decline in Christian writings using Isaiah 2.4. So the moment the empire sticks the cross on the front of a shield and fights for Jesus, we're no longer concerned with turning our swords into plowshares and our knives into pruning hooks. Because once the power is achieved and the empire's on our side, well, then verses like this get pushed, not to the church of the first, second, or third century, which they had been for 300 years. This was their verse. This is what they believed their prophetic imagery was telling them to live like. The moment they linked up with the empire and they received power, no longer are they living in an age where the swords are turned to plowshares. That becomes an eschatological verse that becomes a way out in the future. Someday there's going to be a churn from swords to plowshares. The top of verse two, I told you we'd come back to this in days to come. Now I'm reading from the NRSV. I originally, I think 
studied this in the New King James. Some of you might be New King James or Old King James, and I think it says in the last days or in the latter times. Okay, what are you, ESV? Okay. NIV says, NIV says last days. The, okay, that's interesting. And it's interesting because the Hebrew word there is harit, a word that means after, but never means last days. In other words, it's a word that means after this, after today, after this moment. It doesn't mean into the cosmos, into the world, doesn't even mean into the age. It's not even an eon, Greek eon, age related for word. It's literally a word that means after this. So it's fascinating in a way that for a few hundred years, the church holds as its prophetic verse, the verse we live by. We need to be turning our swords into plowshares. And the moment the sword gets in our hand, now we've got the power and the strength. Okay. Suddenly this is in the last days that this is going to happen. Not after this was written, but way after we're all dead and gone. Not something we have to really have to be concerned with. So much so that by the time I started hearing this verse in the late 20th century, someday God is going to turn our swords to plowshares and our knives into pruning hooks. God's going to do it. But the text never says God's going to do it and the text never says in the last days. The text has Isaiah looking at tomorrow, going after. Something big's about to happen. And we are going to, they, verse 4, they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. They shall. Who shall? The people. Not God. Not some eschatologically arriving Jesus at the end of the cosmos that takes all the swords and throws them in the furnace of his love, and then they all come out like plowshares, and now people that used to fight are now only plowing gardens. No. Isaiah has a prophetic vision of a time right after his time, a time not that far away, where God's going to establish a mountain, and the Lord's house is going to be the highest place, and people can flow into that mountain and be taught who God is, and God's going to be the arbiter of nations, and the people are going to beat their swords into plowshares and their knives into pruning hooks. I think that the church of the first 300 years thought their call was to lay down violence, lay down retribution, lay down payback, lay down secular power, and accept the Christ who in Gethsemane says to Peter, permit even this, when Peter pulls his sword and cuts off Malchus's ear and Jesus steps in between the sword and Malchus and says, no, live by the sword, die by the sword. I think the church of the first few hundred years took that very serious and believed that there's no place for the sword and that instead we should be doing all that we can to become makers of plowshares. And there can be two things no more opposite than war and gardening, <laughs> that, than violence and the peace of a you know, morning dew on the grass. And so the juxtaposition between the sword and the plowshare couldn't be farther apart. But because they're so far apart, it, it sort of screams at us. 
And I think that once a little power was gained and once a little prestige was gained and once a little authority was gained, it's difficult to lay the sword down that you've picked up because the moment you start living by it, you can't fathom any other way than living by it. The moment that you get a little bit of strength or a little bit of security or a little bit of power, it becomes too hard to divorce yourself from that. And so I'm of the persuasion that the early church lived in this moment, this idea, because they were marginalized, because they were outside, because they were powerless. The moment they got some power, they had to push this prophetic image off to another day, to a different generation that would change their swords into plowshares. Because it's no longer our responsibility. It must be somebody else's responsibility. Um, I think that that's worth us thinking about on an individual basis because we can't I, I don't have an answer for how to solve the church at large and I, I don't I don't have any way of claiming that there's anything we could do in this room right here right now that is going to make one ounce of difference on how the church views herself in the western world I mean you, we can yell about it all day and whine about it and complain about it and point it out we can't do anything so in the end the macro is one thing the micro is another so in the end, whatever's going on in the church world is going on in the church world. But whatever's going on in us is the one thing we can deal with. And the last few years have been crucial in me of realizing that I might have a keen eye at what I think's going on in the church. But a keen eye and the ability to change are two different things. And so all I can do is get frustrated with the keen eye of being able to point out something that I don't have any answer to. So... Those last few years, I've watched the Holy Spirit turn that inward to me to say, every time, son, that you think you're spotting what's wrong with the church, I want you to stop and I want you to spot it as being wrong with you. Because you can't change the church, but you could do something to change you. So if you spot that the issue is we like to pick up the sword, we're not turning it into a plowshare. It's one thing for you to say, boy, don't we do that in the church? Isn't this our problem? And everybody, oh, yeah, he spotted it. We didn't do anything. We just become people who can spot what's wrong. But when I can look at me and go, where do I yield the sword? Okay, well, literally, I don't own a sword. Uh, I don't own a weapon. You know, I don't brandish a physical weapon as, you know, and if, and if people do, that's between them and their God as far as I'm concerned way more than between them and their constitution, in my opinion. We've made that an, a, a matter between me and my constitution. I think it ought to be, everything ought to be between you and your God, not between you and your government, but, you know, to each his own, right? Uh, but I can deal with me. So where do I yield the sword? Well, I know where I have. Um, this, <laughs> this has been a sword. Now, I, wh- let me explain. I, I do believe that we can see this as a sword. Um, the word of God is sharp, more powerful than any two-edged sword, pierces the very thunder, soul and spirit, divides the joints and the marrow, discerns the thoughts and intents of the heart. We all know that's Hebrews 4. What we don't think about is that Hebrews 4 is probably not talking about a printed book as much as it's talking about the logos, the word, Jesus. We're, we're really going to get to this on Tuesday nights when we get to Ephesians 6 and you get to the whole armor of God. And you get to the sword of the spirit, which you'll find in Hebrews, in Ephesians 6, our pseudo soldier is not holding in his hand because we don't know where he's holding it. Well, if he's like his Jesus, it's coming out of his mouth. 
In fact, the sword of the Spirit is the Word of God. But you might be like me. You came up in environments where the, the Word was this, and you're not far from making this leap. If this is the Word, and the sword of the Spirit is the Word, then your sword that you use against demons, principalities, powers, darkness, and devils is Scripture. And if you can use the sword against demons, devils, principalities, and powers, well, heck, you can use it against people. And we do. And I have. I have read this thing until my eyes hurt to win arguments, to pin people's sin, to spot what they're not spotting, to find their issues and their problems. And I think we have used the Bible as a sword and we swing it against people. And it's a little bit of bumper sticker theology. It's find the principle that works for your point. Quote it, chapter, verse. Context doesn't matter. In fact, context can only muddy the waters. <laughs> a lot of times, and I need this verse to mean this. Oh, did you read the next verse? Well, I, mean, I just need, the, I need this verse to mean this. Okay, I see what's going on here. And we sharpen our sword to use it in a way that can be damning, like literally damning. Like we use it to curse people into guilt, shame, fear, condemnation. And I don't have to go around and use sample verses. You know, you see them. But how often have we seen the Bible weaponized, is a word I like to use, weaponized against people as a way of inducing them to do something for God scare them into activity and to the point we were talking about before we began some people will even say well whatever it takes to get people to do what they need to do if you've got to scare them if you've got to intimidate them if you've got to make them feel guilty well at least they won't burn in hell which by the way might be weaponizing fire uh, as much as weaponizing the bible the purative fire of god's love then turns into the punitive fire of our of what we call God's justice, and we weaponize something that ought to be beautiful. I mean, if you're cold, you need fire. If you got stuff that needs cleaned off, you need heat. Uh, we've all got that. And to weaponize the fire then is to turn God into the enemy. It's to turn justice into retributive, that God's going to pay you back. God's going to show you. And then we use the Bible for that. It's just another example of using it as... Uh, as a weapon. I think that there's, a, there's something to be said for how we approach judgment through the lens of the new covenant, through the old covenant, that should be said in this segment, this scripture. Um, when you get to Joel, there's a little scripture in the, in, near, in, in the fourth chapter of Joel. Joel, the same Joel that is, Peter goes, in the last days, I'll pour out my spirit. And Joel has a chapter in chapter 4 where God is going to judge the nations around Israel that have been attacking Israel for generations. And God says to Israel, turn your plowshares into swords. It's one of those unique moments in the Bible where a prophet takes another prophet's language and intentionally flips it to make a point. So Isaiah's famous turn your swords into plowshares gets flipped by Joel. Turn your plowshares into swords and then go out and fight the battles of the Lord. In doing that, Joel helps us understand Isaiah. 
Because what Joel is doing is showing that the plowshare can't bring judgment. Only the sword can bring judgment. If God's going to judge the nations, he's not going to do it with a plowshare. He's not going to do it by planting. He's going to do it by destruction. And so when Joel says, turn your plowshares to swords, it ought to let us know what the sword is in the first place. It's the, it's the method of cutting something that needs cut, which tells me that if I'm to turn my sword into a plowshare, I'm going to have to lay down judgment. I'm not going to be able to turn my sword into a plowshare and be judgmental. Judge you for your thoughts and your words and your deeds and your actions and how you're living your life. I'm not going to be able, in fact, I like to say this, in order for me to judge you on your performance, I'm going to have to resuscitate the law of Moses because the law of Moses is what judges you in the light of God's, in God's justice system. It's only, it's, it's the only legally you have the law, the transgressions committed under the law. So for me to judge you on that foundation, I have to resuscitate the law as the standard for your holiness and your righteousness. Well, we don't have that standard. We've been relieved from the law. Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law. Therefore, I don't have any basis to judge you. So I have to turn my sword into a plowshare. I can no longer use this as a weapon against you. Now, we all know it's happening. And we see it. We, and hopefully we're not party to it. But we all see the word being used against people. People groups. People's actions people's lives and it's incredible that we work so hard to use the bible against people when the bible works so hard to put god on people's side and and we miss that because nobody brags about their plowshare but it's kind of fun to brag about your sword and there's this again there is a yet another contrast there the plowshare is boring the sword's exciting. You sharpen your plowshare to tear up ground and dig a garden. You sharpen your sword to kill somebody, to cut something, to sever. And there's not a lot of systemic reward in the church for planting gardens. I, I, I'm, I'm uh, of the persuasion that church leadership should spend more time studying gardening and shepherding than they do generals, presidents, and CEOs. However, it's opposite. You're taught that in leadership you need to study CEOs, great leaders of the past, great presidents of the, of the world, and that's who you admire, people in positions of power and authority. And we're not looking too closely at at the Jesus model. He had to deal with this in his own disciples, by the way, because his disciples, you know, which of us can be greater when we get in the kingdom? And Jesus goes, well, that's not the way this works. That's the way it works if you're a Gentile. Gentiles lord over each other power, and we don't get to do that. You want to be great in this kingdom, you have to serve. First, last, last, first. This is the way this works. The disciples, their minds are blown. They can't get that. They don't get that till after the resurrection. I'm not sure they get that till after Pentecost, because even at the ascension in Acts chapter 1, they look at Jesus on his way up and go, do we get the kingdom now? I mean, they really think that this is all about authority and power. And Jesus, even in that moment, sort of, I think, rolls his eyes and goes, that stuff's up to the Father. What you guys do is go be witnesses to me. Go wash people off. 
It's, it's almost a parting shot, but as Jesus ascends, he goes, no, it's still plowshares over swords. You don't, you don't get inaugurated. You go plant something. You go cultivate something. You go help something grow. Um, it's a bold prophetic vision. It's as bold in Isaiah's day as it should be for us now. But it's a bold prophetic vision. Because in Isaiah, even a chapter earlier than where we are, back in chapter 1, he talks about the constant war. Israel's in constant battle. And so you've got the next chapter, Isaiah, going, right after this, things are about to change. We need to turn our swords into plowshares. It's a bold vision to tell people in a dangerous world that they're supposed to turn their swords into plowshares. And it's also even harder to get the church to take it, take it in when we've gotten a taste of swords. Because when you get a taste of carrying swords, and I, I'm a believer in, in, I'm not a believer in God testing you. Okay, let no man say when he's tested, he's tested of God. For God testeth no man. But I am a believer that God works in the midst of our stuff. And, and we learn something from it. Um, I don't think it's much of a challenge to not pull your sword if you don't have one. And I think it's part of the reason why on the way into the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus tells his disciples to get a sword. And Peter goes, here's two swords. Is that enough? And Jesus goes, yeah, that's going to be enough. <laughs> yeah, that's going to be plenty. And they take the sword, and then they're confronted by the soldiers. And, of course, Peter quickly pulls the sword and starts swinging. And it's one thing for me to turn, for me to build a plowshare, for me to try to cultivate your life. It's another thing for me to have to sheath my sword to cultivate your life. Um, my point there is, let's all, let's look inward. It's not about the whole church. It's about you in this moment. It's about me. I have the opportunity to cultivate, to grow, to weed the garden, to water it, to make sure that people are, they know their love, they know their identity, they know who they are in Christ. But what in me is still weaponized? What in me is still a sword? It's been this. But maybe it's other things as well. And, and whatever that is, and each of us have to, that's each of our challenges, is to, is to sheathe that thing, or, and not just to put it away, but to actually transform it. So for me, the Bible has been something that has been getting hammered away at by the Holy Spirit so that the sword that I'm carrying is turning more into a plowshare so that I'm seeing the Bible not as um, a roadmap to heaven. I think that's a pretty common thing for people to say. Bible's your roadmap to heaven. I don't see it that way anymore. But I do see it as a book that my faith coalesces. It expresses my faith around Jesus Christ. And it pushes to the perimeter of its pages everything that is not Jesus. 
so that every story either spotlights Jesus or gets pushed to the edge, the periphery of my reading. This is the only way I know to transform what I've call, had as a sword into a plowshare to where the stories stop being about my deficiencies, my problems, my judgment, and they start becoming about Jesus. Um, one of the ways for that, I got asked this question by someone this week. What do you think about the stories of the Bible? Were all those stories true? Now, this person was asking from a good place. They weren't, it wasn't a fight. So I felt compelled to really just sort of open my heart a little bit. And I said, well, for me, it is not that important that the Old Testament stories really happened. What is important to me is that I can find the truth in those stories as it relates to Jesus in my journey in Christ. I said, okay, take Noah's Ark. I don't care one bit if Noah, a guy named Noah built a boat out of acacia wood and built it big enough for two of equal, each kind of animal, put them on a boat, and then the earth flooded, and he survived for 40 days, and then he landed on top of Mount Ararat, and I don't care if that really happened. It doesn't matter to my faith if that really happened. What I do care about is that there's a story there that I have the ability to overcome the flood that's coming if I would take responsibility for it. That I also have responsibility for both the earth and the animals that are on it that were part of the same ecosystem. And that if I want to truly spiritualize it, I know that violence doesn't work because even though a flood happens, people are still killing each other afterwards, which means retributive violence never gets tried again. And also, if I want to super spiritualize it and finally land on Jesus, I have an ark with one door and his name is Jesus and he floats me above whatever flood comes my way. Now, all of that means a lot more to me than whether two kangaroos, which live in Australia, make it onto an ark that lands in Mesopotamia. And I don't know how those kangaroos hip hop their way all the way across India and swim across the Indian Ocean and find themselves in Australia. I guess he put a little raft and he floated the, the kangaroos all the way down to Australia. Now, I'm being a smart aleck. I know that's my way. But the point is, is how those two things get to Australia. Well, I don't know. Maybe they've always been in Australia. You go, well, what about Noah's Ark? <laughs> I think you might have missed the point of the Noah's Ark story. Now, you can... We can fight for the literal and miss the, to me, we can miss the good stuff. In a way, that's the, outside of just talking about weaponizing the Bible, in a way, to me, that's how we beat our swords into plowshares. That's one way we do it, is that we stop with the fundamental literal demand on the scripture and we recognize the plowshare version of the scripture the story that makes the most cultivating sense in my life the story that gives me different streams of improvement my life could actually be better with this story than just having the knowledge of whether this one happened or not by the way to that person i said the only non-negotiable story for me in the bible is a resurrection i believe jesus is alive uh, i don't i don't have all the answers as to what that looked like I can't give you which gospel account nails this and which one gets, but I believe Jesus is alive. And because I believe Jesus is alive, then I think everything will be okay. And I think there's hope for tomorrow. And if I truly believe Jesus is alive, then I'm obligated to follow him. 
And I, I, I think to me that has become Christianity for me. If you truly believe Jesus resurrected, how are you not following him? And how do you not pay attention to him? Because if he's really alive, then a man raised from the dead. And you go find me someone else who's done that. <laughs> and if I truly believe that, then I got to believe the stories about him and I got to take them serious. And my Jesus doesn't carry a sword anywhere but out of his mouth. My Jesus cultivates the people around him. I'm then forced to turn my sword into a plowshare. Maybe in a literal sense, we're going to see a world, we will see a world where we, where we lay down the weapons of war and we pick up the cultivation. I, I know that we will. The, prof, the prophetic imagery takes us there. But I want to land on this thought. When you make this eschatological, either because you're in love with power or because you think it's the only real answer, people aren't going to pay attention if you don't smack them back. Because that's kind of where we are. Like The only way you're really going to get anybody's attention is to make them pay. And we've sort of rest, settled into that comfortable blanket. Once you get there and you make all of this eschatological, last days, then you're putting it all off on God to do it. And that's why we end up with God is going to make them turn their swords to plowshares. Here's the, here's the prophetic word. No, he's not. God isn't going to make us do anything. He is not going to make us turn our swords to plowshares. We're going to have to do that. So I believe in participatory Christianity. I don't participate for my righteousness. I don't participate for my identity. I don't participate for my forgiveness. It's a done deal. I participate in turning my sword to plowshares. Wherever God reveals to me that there is that, that needs transformed, I'm going to have to do it. I'm going to have to listen to the Jesus that cries over me. I want to read you two verses. Go to Luke 19. Let's land New Testament. Luke chapter 19. Jesus is on his way into Jerusalem. This is the triumphal entry. You know this story. This is also sort of the kickoff to Holy Week. Jesus stops on his way into Jerusalem in Luke 19.41. As he came near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, If you, even you, had only recognized on this day the things that make for peace. What a phrase. The things that make for peace. But now they're hidden from your eyes. Indeed, the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up ramparts around you, surround you, hem you in on every side. They'll crush you to the ground. You and your children within you, they'll not leave within you one stone upon another because you did not recognize the time of your visitation from God. Notice Jesus doesn't say, my dad's going to kill you. My dad's so mad at you. He says, this is what happens in a world full of swords. You guys want to live by it. You're going to die by it. Somebody bigger and stronger than you is going to come along and crush you. I am your answer for peace. I am the thing that could make, notice that phrase, make for peace. There's going to have to be something you could have laid it down and accepted me. If you had laid it down and accepted me, it would have made for peace. But you didn't lay it down and accept me. You held on to it. And because you held on to it, you're going to struggle. So if Jesus looks at Jerusalem on his way to the cross and goes, there are things that make for peace and I am it then the transforming, transforming of swords to plowshares is in the acceptance of Christ and who he is. One more, Romans 14, 19. Let's get Paul involved in this little party. Romans 14, Paul's on his way out at the end of the letter to the church at Rome. 
He's kind of making little, he's, he's sort of starting that ending in which he starts to give little principles. And he says this in verse 19, Romans 14, 19, let us then pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. Of all the Paul verses that gets quoted, why does this one never get quoted? Like it doesn't even exist in the Bible. Romans 14, 19, let us pursue what makes for peace and mutual upbuilding. Make it what we do all the time. Turn my sword into a plowshare. Turn my knife into a pruning hook. When we do this, we become a people who cultivate. Because if you got a plowshare and you got a pruning hook, I know the sword's more fun to talk about, but if you got a plowshare and you got a pruning hook, you're doing some gardening. And gardening takes patience. And we don't get fruit overnight. Swords cut people immediately. Swords don't cut slowly. A sword's a quick kill. A plowshare is the opposite. A pruning hook's the opposite. Christ's way is the opposite. I think we've even had sword salvations. Like we want to stab the sin out of you. You know, get you immediately in here and get it all taken care of right now. And the truth is, faith is something you walk into. And sometimes over time. And you don't get fruit out of people by screaming at them and yelling at them and cutting them. But maybe the pruning hook prunes away this and prunes away that, lifts this and washes that. We're in a vineyard and we're being cultivated by the Holy Spirit. And only in that cultivating atmosphere of the Holy Spirit are we going to find peace. It's a prophetic image, but it's one that should be in our day. My whole point in this is so that you will start to spot in your, because you can spot it in a church, ain't gonna do you any good. I've learned, I'm finally coming to this grips. Like, who cares if I got a keen eye for what I think's going on in the church? Pfft, big deal. Do I have a keen eye on what's going on in me? So, in any place I haven't yet transformed to the cultivator, to the garden keeper, to the grower of the crops that produce the fruit of the Spirit, well, that's my journey, and that's yours as well. So, where can I? Where could I lay down the sword? And maybe, maybe we need new terminology. Maybe it's not just a sword, but it's just the opposite of my cultivating spirit. Where, where do I need to lay that down? And as the Holy Spirit works that in you, that's the thing, those are the things we give him. I, I don't think we've yet really tapped into the, to the power of prayer as a people of grace. Um... I get so many prayer questions from grace people. They're like, why, you know, God knows everything. Why do I got to pray about it all the time? And I, I, I'm, I'm amazed that we have done such a poor job of equipping our own spirits for how to pray. So take this stuff to the Lord every day, repetitively. It doesn't mean you don't believe it. And it doesn't mean you're trying to get God's attention. It means you're trying to get yours. <laughs> prayer, prayer is forming you. It's not forming God. So you bring the prayer back because it's the thing you need. And then you bring the prayer back and you bring the prayer back. And after a while, you start to realize, you start to get some insight into what you're praying about. So Lord, where can I turn the sword to a plowshare? And don't, and we don't leave it alone. We let him show us swords to plowshares. Father, thank you for this word. I don't know how to, I can't change the church. I don't know if it needs changed anyway. I, 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 I can spot stuff, think I've got a keen eye or discernment of the spirit. The truth is, Father, I got my own grip on swords. 
you know, stuff like that I've weaponized or that I think are the right way to do it that all they really do is divorce me from peace. I, I know that what I need in those moments is to take that sword and turn it into a plowshare. Show me where I can be a cultivator instead of a destroyer. Show me where my words are tearing people down instead of building people up. Show me where my actions are doing more harm than they're doing good. This is participatory. This is what I'm called to do. This is me participating with your work in me. I'm your son. I'm righteous. I'm redeemed. I'm forgiven. I'm sanctified. I'm spirit-filled. But I still carry a sword sometime. And it's in that that I need to lay that thing down. So wherever that is, show me. And as we pray that, start the process of showing us. And may we not just make it a once in a while, but a part of our journey. And we thank you for that in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Amen.